time for re-engineering your finances with the founder of CP Weldy Group, Charles Weldy. I think you'll enjoy today's show. We're going to be talking about uh, various questions from listeners, and I uh, can't wait to get to these. We're going to help uh, cover a lot of ground on the program today with a smattering of topics coming from these questions. Uh, Walter Schultz, we're with you alongside Charles Weldy here on Reengineering Your Finances. He is the founder and certified financial planner at CP Weldy Group, and uh, we're so glad that you've taken the time to join us for today's episode. Charles, you ready for some rapid-fire questions coming your way today? I'm as ready as I will be, Walter. Fire away, baby. You're answering these things in the office every day, so I'm sure this won't be any any difficulty for you at all to handle. Uh, Dean's got our first question. By the way, if you want to submit a question to be featured on the show, get in touch through the website, cpweldygroup.com, or on Facebook. Uh, Dean says, my plan has been to work for one more year, then find some kind of part-time work for about four years to supplement my retirement income. But now I'm wondering if I'd just be better off to continue working full-time for two more years and then just be done working altogether. Which is better? Well, I mean, you know, which is better? I think it's, uh, you know, I'm looking at it like, hey, two years isn't a long time. Do you like your job? Do you hate your job? If you don't hate your job, I mean, I'd stay at your job full-time for two more years. I think after that, you got more flexibility. You can work part-time if you want or, you know, uh, if you made the income that you needed to make, you know, adding the uh, one more year plus the four part-time years, you know, you you can like retire forever. So I kind of think that, you know, it really depends on like, hey, what's the atmosphere at work? If it's, uh, you know, unbearable, obviously, you know, it's an easy choice to leave after one year and you work somewhere else for four years part-time. But if it's a type of job that, hey, you know, no, no, lot, not a lot of pressure and you can withstand an extra year, I think that I would probably opt to work another year and keep things more uh, in line to what you're, you know what's going to happen as opposed to what might happen. Good points there, Charles. Yep, makes sense, and it's a good question, Dean. A lot more people, Charles, are engaging in that kind of conversation, right? Like, uh, it, it's no longer just you know your retirement date years and years in advance, and that's the day, and everything's cold turkey. A lot of people have these sort of nebulous retirement plans, and that that's okay. Yeah, I think what you know, what I'm finding in my practice, Walter, is like uh, people, they don't want to work full-time. They want to work part-time, maybe until they're 65, to keep that medical coverage and, you know, Obviously, you know, every company's different, but I think if you work 30 hours, uh, you're considered full time in a lot of companies. And, you know, maybe that's a four day work week at nine hours a day. And, you know, you got your medical and, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're feeling a little bit better than going in there nine to five, five days a week. So, um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, that's the big thing I see is like people want to keep their medical coverage until they reach age 65 and qualify for Medicare. Oh, interesting that that is the uh, motivator that you often see kind of behind the scenes for why that shift is happening. Again, thanks for the question, Dean. All right, we've got one here from Claire. We recently got a letter promoting a program where we can split our mortgage payments in half and pay every two weeks instead of once a month. Somehow this helps us pay it off faster. Is this something we should do? Uh, you know, I, I don't want to say there's anything right or wrong with doing that. I mean, obviously, you know, um, you know, there's good debt and bad debt. I mean, if you qu- questioned 100 people and then said, hey, would you rather have a home mortgage or not a home mortgage? They'd probably all say, hey, we don't want a home mortgage. So in the case of like, you know, uh, they call it a bi-monthly payment, paying twice a month as opposed to one time a month. I think it might be you know easier. And I- I'm sure there's a cost to that. I don't think like 
people set that up for nothing. But And maybe the cost is minuscule, so maybe that's not an issue. But what I would suggest is that when they get that 30-year mortgage, get an amortization schedule. When they get that you know 20-year mortgage, get an amortization schedule. If they get a 15-year mortgage, get an amortization schedule. And what we found is that, hey, for a 30-year mortgage, if you just pay the next payment, just the principal payment only for seven years, it's not much more of a payment, you know, because obviously they're they're heavy on the interest early in the, the, the mortgage payoff. Uh, you know, you could convert a 30-year mortgage to a 23-year mortgage just by prepaying the next month principal payment for the first seven years. And it's not that much more per month. And the same concept with a 20-year mortgage. Hey, for five years, you, you know, you pay the next month's mortgage payment. Now you're a 15-year mortgage instead of a 20-year mortgage. And then those that have a 15-year mortgage, if for three years they made that extra principal payment, and the fourth year they could still do it, but it gets to be a little bit higher, you know, but the point I want to make is like they can convert a 15-year mortgage to a 12-year mortgage just by prepaying the next month's principal payment, you know, on a 15-year mortgage over the next three years. So again, it makes sense to, uh, you know, maybe pay additional principal payments, which a bi-monthly mortgage does, but I'm not so sure you need an outside service to set it up. You know, when you, you know, get your mortgage, you know, just request an amortization schedule and just pay the next month's principal payment, you know, depending upon, you know, the term of your mortgage, you can cut it down substantially, you know, just by doing that over a period of three to seven years. Yeah, I, I've had uh, friends who do that kind of extra payment um, that they do, you know, they'll do one full extra payment per year and they'll do it all at once. Um, I've always kind of just done extra payment on the principal each month. So it's like, I'll just round up to whatever, you know, whatever it might be. So it doesn't right. feel like any extra coming out of your pocket, but that adds up over the course of the year to be an extra payment and absolutely helps accelerate things and build equity a little bit faster than you might think. And you can do all that without having to lock yourself into more frequent payments Exactly. Um, just like you're kind of talking about there. Well, that's so. a good point. Yeah. So yeah. with the the the, um, the bi monthly, you're locking yourself in. You got more flexibility, you know, just by using the amortization schedule. Yep, it's a great right. point. Unless you like paying things more frequently and seeing smaller amounts come out, I guess it depends on how you manage your money, right? So exactly, if it's hard for you to save up for a, a bigger amount, um, then you know maybe that is worth looking into to just kind of force you to split it up into smaller payments. But uh, great question, Claire. There's ways to get the financial benefits without having to go through that process. Uh, Bill has a question for you, Charles. Bill says, I heard someone say that you should be saving 15% of your income for retirement, but we're only saving about 10%, and even that seems like a lot. Do you think we are in trouble? Well, you know, I don't know Bill's age, but if Bill, you know, is a young person, 10% is fine. Uh, obviously, you know, if he's in his, like, late 40s, early 50s, and he's behind the eight ball, 15% might be more appropriate. And there's people that are in their like late 50s, early 60s that are way far behind and they have to put it, you know, away a lot more. So that percentage really, you know, is really like uh, dictated by how young you start. You know, I think if uh, someone just get out of college, they start their job and they're putting 10% of their gross salary away, I think by the time that they decide to retire, they're going to be in pretty good shape. So 
you know, to answer that question for Bill, Bill, you know, if you're in your, uh, you know, 30s, 10 percent's fine. If you're in your 40s, maybe up it a little bit. But 50s and 60s, you know, you got to like kind of look at what your current balance is and what your, you know, there's a lot more to it than just putting away a certain percentage. But obviously, the earlier you are, the less percentage you can put away. The older you are, if you're behind the eight ball, you know, it could be like uh, as high as 25 percent. It's hmm. a really good question. Thank you, Bill, for submitting that one to us as well. A couple of things for you to think about there. Cal says, we don't have much save for retirement, but we're about to sell our farm for just over a million dollars. Nice, Cal. Uh, we've never really invested in the market before, so we don't really know what we're doing. Where do we start with all this new money? Well, you, you start with a date, dollar-specific written plan. And uh, as we talked about in prior podcasts, you know, the plan would have three buckets of money, now money, soon money, later money. Uh, we would determine what their income gap was. And basically, that's the money they're going to need for the next 10 years. And we would put a certain amount of money in that soon bucket to actually like subsidize their living costs over the next 10 years. Then we would allocate a certain percentage to you know the cash account and emergency fund, so to speak, that they would have available at all times. I mean, sometimes people have too much money in that bucket. And the problem there is it's not making anything. With inflation being 3% plus a year, they're actually losing purchasing power. So we would try to determine, hey, what's the right ideal amount to have in that now bucket? And then that would give us like the remaining balance in the later bucket to invest for growth. One of the things I want to mention, Walter, though, uh, you know, with people that come into large inheritances or sell a business or, um, you know, sell a farm in this instance, is that, you know, one of the big questions we get is like, hey, should we put it all in at once or should we put it in over time? And uh, I did a little research. And uh, since 1926, they call them rolling periods, 12 months rolling periods. That means that, you know, even though in calendar year, 1926 was only like you know one 12 month period you know uh when you look at like say february of 2026 to february of 2027 that's a one year rolling period do you follow what i'm saying yep i'm understanding right so there's there's been over 1100 rolling periods since 1926 1100 12 months rolling periods and when what I mean by that is like, hey, over 1,100 instances where the market's up, down, or sideways, and you know, it, it looks like all the data indicates that 75% of the time the market's up, and obviously 25% of the time the market's down. So if you were not to put all your money in at once, there's a three out of four chance that you might, you know, not be doing the right thing because history has shown over time, you know, that the market goes up, you know, 75% of the time. So to answer Cal's question, uh, yeah, we would do a date specific plan. We would probably invest everything, you know, all at once and we would put it in strategic buckets now, soon and later, depending upon when the income was needed and how much was needed. Fantastic. I love it, Charles. And this is uh, helpful to get questions like this, Cal. So thanks for sending that one in to us. All right, I got two more for you, Charles, uh, here in the lightning round. You are doing very well, my friend. Uh, Bethany says, I've read about Joe Kennedy and the way that he set up trusts to make sure that every Kennedy that's ever born for the rest of time is basically guaranteed to be a millionaire. Our family certainly isn't the Kennedys, but we're interested in creating some generational wealth. What's the best way to do it? Well, you know, I went years ago, I went to this training and uh, I'll never forget uh, someone, whoever it was, like, I forget the name of the gentleman or the girl that was speaking, but basically they said, hey, you know, figure out how much you want to give your children and grandchildren 
and then buy life insurance and then spend the rest. So I've done that. I've got three kids and I, you know, I mean, obviously they're going to get more than just the life insurance, hopefully. But uh, the reality of it is, is like, that's the best asset to, to have to actually give to your children or grandchildren because A, it's tax-free and B, it grows tax-free during your lifetime. You can fund it, you know, with after-tax dollars and uh, it's, it's a wonderful gift. I mean, think about it. You have three kids. One gets um, you know, a million-dollar IRA. One gets a million-dollar brokerage account that is funded with after-tax money. And one gets a million-dollar life insurance death benefit. Uh, if you're one of the three kids, Walter, which one do you want? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Should be, so it should be a pretty obvious choice from there, right? The second one would be the after-tax. And the last one would be the IRA, which is subject to you know, Uncle Sam putting a claim in for maybe 25% of the, you know, of the gross amount. So, um, yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that if you want to create wealth for your children or grandchildren, you should consider buying life insurance. And when I say buying life insurance, what you want to do is you want to buy the least amount of death benefit, but put as much cash in there as you possibly can so that money will grow tax free. And in the case of grandchildren, perhaps you could provide them with uh, money for college and maybe a down payment on their house just from that one policy. And for your children, instead of them inheriting a tax liability, they inherit tax-free money that they can pretty much do whatever they want with. So I, I think that's a no-brainer. We all could be Rockefellers and we all could be Kennedys by, you know, allocating some of our dollars to, you know, life insurance for young, healthy, you know, children and or grandchildren. Fantastic. All right, last question for you, Charles. This one comes to us from Jared. And Jared says, I'm about to get married. We're both in our 50s, and it will be my second marriage and her third. I'd like to keep all our assets separate so that we each have our own financial lives and don't have to fight about money. But how do we plan for retirement if we don't really know what our total numbers look like? Well, I I think, you know, they both have to know what the total numbers look like for each one. Each one has to get a a financial plan done, you know, maybe in conjunction with each other. But the key there, Walter, is what expenses during retirement are they going to share and what portion of those expenses, you know, are going to be allocated to each partner. So if it's 50-50 and, you know, they're spending, uh, you know, eight grand a month, you know, we develop a plan for each one that they're spending $4,000 a month. If it's a, a plan where one's paying 60% of the expenses, the other 40, we just adjust it. But, you know, they both need their own plan. Obviously, their expenses either are going to be the same or a little bit different, depending upon what their agreement is. But that's, you know, that's an easy thing to do. And if there's privacy involved, you know, obviously, each plan is done, you know, confidentially with each particular client. But, you know, the expenses that they share, you know, are common knowledge and they know what they're liable for on a monthly basis. So I I don't think that's that big of a deal. What concerns me is the third marriage. That is too funny. Yes. Uh, the third marriage, you're on your second. Uh, be careful uh, as you go through this. No, no, we, we, we kid. Uh, yeah, I, I get to tell a little joke here. I remember years ago, I took this class, nothing to do with uh, finances, but it, you know, it was about like who you are, what's happening, why you're here, that type of thing. And uh, one of the, the phrases was, hey, you know, if you're in your second or third marriage, the common denominator is you. 
<laughs> uh, that's too good. It's too good. Little, little ribbing for you, Jared. But no, uh, best of luck on, on the marriage and uh, uh, well wishes to you and uh, your future bride. Fantastic. And uh, a couple of things for you to be thinking about getting on the same page financially there before you tie that knot. Uh, so much to cover in today's show. And Charles, you did it all very well. Uh, if you've got additional questions, you know, these are the kinds of questions Charles gets every day from folks. Certainly you've got two or three or maybe more on your mind that you'd like to cover. If you want to set up that time to visit and have a consultation about your financial plan, how you can make it more tax efficient and comprehensive, reach out to a certified financial planner. Charles is based out of Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania, and you can get in touch with him by going to cpweldygroup.com or calling 610-388-7705. 610-388-7705, and uh, that'll put you in touch directly with Charles and the team. Charles, thank you for your help, and we'll look forward to chatting with you again on the next episode. Thank you, Walter. Appreciate it. All right. For Charles, I'm Walter. We'll see you next time on Reengineering Your Finances. Financial planning and advisory services are offered through Prosperity Capital Advisors, PCA, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Registration as an investment advisor does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The CP Weldy Group and PCA are separate, non-affiliated entities. PCA does not provide tax or legal advice.